Welcome into the Housing Hour with Kevin Ray, a locally produced program devoted to bringing you a fresh perspective on housing, diving into the issues that matter most. The Housing Hour with Kevin Ray is presented by Mortgage Investors Group. And now, Kevin Ray. Welcome into the Housing Hour. This is Kevin Ray. I am your host. I'm here with Mark Griffith, our executive producer and co-host. He is the man, and I appreciate you guys stopping into the housing hour today. Um, we're excited to actually be talking about something that is uh, 50 years uh, in the making, and, and it's actually the anniversary of Woodstock. And we've brought in a, a great friend of the show's, Terry Adams. Terry, how are you, sir? Outstanding, Kevin. How are you doing, brother? I love the energy that you bring. And Terry has also given me some exercise advice uh, <laughs> in our pregame uh, warm-up here. Um, so I'm, I appreciate that as well. And, you know, this is the weekend, August 15th through the 18th, 1969, correct? Yeah, was, that's right. It was the 18th through the 20th, something like that. But it was fi- the middle was part of August. Fi- 15th to the 18th, actually. I'm looking at it. <laughs> right. um, but, you know, Mark, Mark is really good at identifying very important milestones and anniversaries and things that, that are important to talk about. And Terry being such a good friend of the shows and also his mother, when we'll talk a little bit more about this, was a songwriter. Shirley Wood. Shirley Wood. Um, was it Baby Bye Bye Bye? No, wait. That was Justin Timberlake. Cry, cry, cry. <laughs> cry, cry. There you go. Um, but it was, bye, bye, bye. Yeah, exactly. But I think they, maybe that he was copying her, actually. Uh, I mean? we, we might have a suit. <laughs> um, but we're going to talk a little bit about that. Terry, Terry's a musician himself. Um, and he grew he, up in that Grew up in that environment. He he also is. I don't know if he would call himself a, a Woodstock expert, but he knows a lot about what happened. But he's a love baby. He's a love baby. <laughs> exactly. That's true. That's true. So we thought we would uh, talk a little bit about that. And Mark, yeah. um, as well, you had a couple of people you've spoken with. You had a friend up yes. in Philadelphia who has has written a, a nice paragraph, and we'll glean some of that as well. Exactly. So he yeah. just I just reached out to a few, and so I think you have too. And I mm-hmm. had a lot of friends on Facebook kind of reach out to find somebody that's been there to talk to. Mm-hmm. And uh, they a lot of them weren't able to come on air with us, and that's that's fine. But some of them sent us just their uh, their take of what it was like and uh, we're going to be posting that on the housinghour.com absolutely and so I, what i'd like to first do is because you know the greatest generation looking back just kind of looking mm-hmm. at it from a historical perspective you know the greatest generation had went through so much if you're looking back in american history and they there was so much expected of them and they they had very uh, tough circumstances as they were growing up you know you talk about you know, Pearl Harbor, you know, World War II, you know, going through the Great Depression. I mean, there was just so much stuff that was happening. And so when the boomer generation sort of launched after World War II, you know, people started having babies. You know, that was the biggest increase um, in a generation. You know, the amount of babies that were born in 1946 and 1947, I mean, the, the numbers just went, went up, you know, a lot. And those those kids, you know, that were born into that boomer generation, my father, my mother, and our probably parents Mine as well, definitely. yeah, um, had a whole different life that their parents had. They didn't have the same uh, demands, not to say our, that their lives weren't challenging, but it was different. You know, we had been through a lot 
in the in the fifties and the sixties there was there was much more opportunity and growth happening. But, but there was a huge, huge difference that I see mm-hmm. is that what you mentioned, the Great Depression. You know, so they they learned how to live through when times were tough. And they held back. Mm-hmm. The baby boomers were born in the greatest golden boom, mm-hmm. the greatest age of uh, golden age of capitalism mm-hmm. known to man, other than what we're in right now. By the way, sure, is longer than that. But it was a so they're financially in a different world than their parents were. Big disconnect, uh, and and I think uh, not only just financially. But also uh, from terms of education and like real yes. opportunities, you know what uh, what they were reading, what what had been, um, you know, you, you think about the the Jack Kerouacs and the beat movement and the jazz movement and all those things that were happening at the time during uh, the Greatest Generation's lifetime that was not embraced, yeah. but that was ultimate children mm. changing everything yeah changing everything yeah that's that was one thing too is that you had the things that the the boomers were were really most known for in a positive light of course was pushing forward on civil rights and women's rights and you know things that although they're certainly not perfect the greatest generation was was a great generation but some of the things that they needed a little bit of encouragement a little pushing and i think the boomers really helped push those things forward well and and the thing about it is you know uh, what did world war war 2 do to aid in that well i mean they integrated the armed services mm. i mean you know a lot of people who had certain feelings about uh race discrimination came back from that war and they had changed mm. and they taught that to their children they implemented things in the public school system that said hey you know that at the time there were still segregated schools but they're being taught that it, you know the the racism is not right that you know the world uh, really should should be a better place than this and so you know that war those circumstances really did begat the 60s i didn't even think about it from that perspective i was more thinking of it as like the boomers were dragging the greatest generation along and some of those key social uh, and i'm sure that was the case in some regard but that's a very good point terry that there was some people change you know we all our position in on certain big things it's okay to change your position as long as you can explain how you got there you know like well, and, and like, these guys they, yeah. so so they these guys that uh, were racist mm-hmm. uh, these white people that were racist all of a sudden you know that they're serving with black people and they realize that okay well we're, we have a lot more in common right. than we than we uh, thought and also they're in europe mm. And they're seeing that, like all of a sudden in France, that's real they, they don't. Yeah. They, well, in France, they don't really treat African or people of African descent differently. Oh, I see. Uh, you know, and they're they're seeing well. Okay, there's a whole other way mm. uh, of looking at the world. Um, I mean. You, I guess I was referring to Nazis and no, yeah, that, those oh, and <laughs> and honestly, like the yeah. whole the whole world like recoiled against mm. all of that at one time. Yeah, that's true. And so it was a lot easier to have a conversation about so, people. See what being happens equal. when you educate your children? Mm. I mean, so they 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 learned that these things were wrong and mm-hmm. that there was a contradiction from our parents mm-hmm. to the way the world was being operated and they 
that was the beginning of the culture change. Absolutely. And, you know, not everyone was on that train, unfortunately, because it still took a lot of heartache and even some, I mean, you look at Dr. Martin Luther King and sort of his um, whole life, uh, you know, he had a dream way before anything really happened. Um, and there was still, you know, all of the, all that happened with the civil rights movement. Um, so the, the planting of the seeds, I think is, is the key there because, you know, you look at, you look at a lot of people who grew up in the sixties and you think all people of the sixties who were teenagers turned out to be hippies, not necessarily true, you know? No, no, that's the reason why they call it a counterculture. I mean, that like most people were, were not hippies, uh, you know, uh, Nixon was elected twice. Right. You know, uh, you you, don't, you can't forget that the that you know society at the time was generally conservative, mm. um, and and looking to uh, you know their leadership to uh, to to slow things down. Um, and you know, I, I love Woodstock as a uh, a talking point for like the the historical um, nature of. All all that happened between the uh, the 50s through the 70s, because the those guys wanted it to be a political statement. Right. They they intentionally made it a counterculture movement. They wanted to say something to Richard Nixon at the time right. that, hey, mm. there's a lot of us and there's a lot of us that disagree with you. Mm. And, yeah. you know. It, so, you know, from from that standpoint, you think, wow, you know, a bunch of young kids. I mean, those those guys were in their early twenties that that uh, that organized it. Yeah. And it's just interesting that you know the the catalyst. I think most historians agree on is that the catalyst was the assassination of John F. Kennedy, mm. and that that was the the tipping point that really gave the fire to the counterculture movement. For yeah. some reason, I don't yeah. know exactly why, but everybody points to that period of time. Well, yeah. that, I, think, I think he and, represented for a lot of people hope. what, yeah, what they're, I mean, you know, the moon race that we just got done talking about, yeah, right. he, he really inspired a lot of people to, to look within and, and ask what it was That's that you were point. doing, you know, what is it, what are we doing here? And I even liked his, you know, famous quote, you know, ask not what you can Get out of your country. Right. Tell us the quote. Yeah. There, you know. Do unto others before they do it unto you. <laughs> no, no, that was, that was Richard Nixon. softly carried. That, that was another another man. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I think that JFK, RFK also. You know, oh, yeah, yeah, that was big, successful. too. And then, of course, Martin Luther King as well. Mm-hmm. Well, we're going to continue this very interesting conversation with Terry Adams, Mark Griffith, me, right here on the Housing Hour. We'll be right back. Touch my bags if you please, Mr. Customs Man. The Housing Hour with Kevin Ray continues, helping you understand what's really going on out there and what to do about it. Again, Kevin Ray. Welcome back into the Housing Hour. Again, Kevin Ray here. Thank you for joining us. Um, want to tell you guys how to plug in with us. I forgot to mention that. It's uh, thehousinghour.com. You can go there and find all of our shows, all of our past shows. You can also search in the menu for Terry Adams. And Terry's been on five, six, seven times. I mean, quite a oh, few. Oh, yeah, several. Maybe, maybe in the lead for a number of times as a guest, I think, close to it. Tim Burchett might, you and Tim might be right there, neck and neck. Um, 
so anyway, we're we're having a good time, sort of celebrating a, a anniversary, the Woodstock fifty years ago, coming up on August fifteenth through the eighteenth. And uh, Mark was uh, talking off air about some of the things that. Um, we want to talk about, and thus definitely let's, let's dig into that in a minute. I did want to just mention this because I thought it was interesting. There was a lot of people, uh, and Terry, you mentioned this. I don't know if it was off air or on air because we've been talking a lot. You know, <laughs> Some of the stuff was so good off air. We were like, wait, let's, let's talk about it on air. But um, that this concert did have some great artists. I mean, hey, you know, we, we had, we'll, we'll talk about that a little more. I mean, you had Joe Cocker, you had, you know, the best guitar player of all time in Jimi Hendrix. I mean, there were, you know, Janis Joplin. I mean, there, the list goes on of great ones. But there was a lot of people that either declined or weren't able to make it or a variety of things. I mean, we're talking about Bob Dylan. Um, he actually was a resident of the town of Woodstock, which was not too far away. Um, Simon and Garfunkel declined an invitation Led Zeppelin was asked to perform, uh, but they didn't end up performing for whatever reason. Uh, the Birds were invited, but chose not to participate. Um, Chicago uh, did not go. Uh, so, I mean, the list, there's quite a long list of, of artists that declined. Because two weeks before that was the Atlantic City Pop Festival, and most of those performers P-O-P? performed. P.O.P.? Yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. I just want to make P-O-P. sure. Uh, I thought you said P.O.T. No, Pop. pop. A pop. Okay, oh, gotcha. Well, I know yeah, you got gonna, you. I mean. <laughs> well, you know, the Doors were the biggest act in the world at the time. And, uh, yeah. you know, I, I think that they were not invited due to uh, some issues that uh, Morrison had gotten into. I think he'd been arrested a couple of times at shows what and whatnot. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, I didn't see him on here. But, yeah, you're right. I mean, thinking back, that was definitely one. But that could have been a reason why they didn't, because it was so True. close to, to that one. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. I'm just suggesting. Well, the 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 gentleman who whose dairy farm that this was on, and and I'd like to learn more about the details of how this all came about. I do know the gentleman, the four gentlemen who were responsible for putting this on. You know, they ended up doing it here at this farm, uh, this dairy farm. Max, uh, I can't remember what his last name is, uh, but anyway, he he you know, was asked to do it again in 1970, and he declined. Because obviously, I mean, what a huge upheaval this whole event really was and i was listening to um uh cronkite's uh call on this the 18th when it was all over and it was very interesting it was the original footage from uh the broadcast on cbs back in, i was on august 18th and you know people did not uh, immediately look at this event as a defining moment or as a capstone that that's not really what it was being broadcast. It was more of like, this was a national tragedy almost. I mean, there was also a reporter that he brought in that did talk about the peace and love movement and that there was no violence. And, but it, I don't know that it had that same spin on the local news that, that night. Well, no, nobody knew yeah. that this was a big event. I mean, it, everybody knew that like a bunch of kids showed up to a right. field in New York, but, but <laughs> right. people didn't understand uh, that, that this was going to change things. And, you know, like Hendrix was on the map. Hendrix mm-hmm. was on the map from the Monterey uh, festival a couple of years before, but a lot of these other guys, you know, I mean, they, they were on the map, but they were not big worldwide acts. Mm-hmm. This concert would make them worldwide oh, acts. Yeah. And and then uh, you know it's funny because you know they, they talk about the hundreds of thousands of people and all this kind of thing that have their stories about you know what what happened and they they saw Hendrix and they saw you know well I mean we know that that, that that's false because you know the PA systems weren't uh, functioning at 
at a level that that a hundred thousand people could even hear what's going on. So you know, twenty or thirty thousand people got to see what was going on there. But it was the the moment when the uh, the film made it into popular culture. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, memories were created. Oh yeah, I was there, right. and oh, I remember that. I remember that. I remember that. And right. you know, and I and I don't think that people are really lying, but I think the memory uh, has has a funny way of working sometimes. Right. You know, so you you went back and you watched it, and now now you remember well, hyperbole. Think, hyperbole well, is where I was saying history. <laughs> history always defines events, right? right? And and whether it's right or wrong or indifferent, it is what it is at the end of the day. But this one was interesting. Because the whole movement, the counterculture movement, was really based on something that was uh, probably thought that literature would be the cause of cultural movements. But music ended up at the end of the day. And you mentioned that uh, some of these people were unknown. But and I know that you realize that all of that was a lot of California stuff coming over the Rockies into the eastern area and performing music that was big in california at that time uh, yeah well and and the whole idea you know i mean a lot of people say that that music was moving the culture but it, it was also reflecting the culture oh, i mean it point. you know it, there there was definitely a yin and yang going on because you know the the, the beatles in 1964 was singing i want to hold your hand right by 1969 sergeant peppers is out Mm. Right. And you're you're going, okay, this is a completely different thing. I mean, you know, you got the Beatles going to India, you know, like getting into transcendental meditation and all kinds of crazy stuff, uh, you know, singing about Lucy in the sky with diamonds, which we all know what that means. (laughs) Um, And now, uh, but, but the, you know, their music was a reflection of the culture and the society, not, not just pushing it in in a certain direction well well i was just no i'm sorry i was just going to say that you know the culture at the time when you have somebody like richard nixon who's being impeached from office and you see that um and what year was that 72 so that, that was but coming he, out 74 right, but everybody knew he was a crook before then, I think. <laughs> no, no they didn't they elected him twice yeah, they, i know i mean everybody didn't know he was a crook he had right. he, okay and he was and he was elected by a landslide let me ask you this the second though. time let me ask yeah. you this though do you think that um trump is the best president of the united states have ever has ever seen no, you don't. I know that. <laughs> so all no, I'm saying, there. all I'm saying is, is that there was a movement maybe that wasn't able to vote in the person they wanted, but but, this, but it was contributing to like the decisions that that Nixon was making in office and so forth. But the baby boomers were just getting you know their their lives together. Right. I mean, <laughs> and true. most eighteen year olds don't vote. Oh, yeah. And they still don't vote. And they still don't vote. So back then they didn't really they couldn't really effectively go into the voting booths and change the culture. So that was this is their way of doing it. And how did they connect? They connected through the music. Mm -hmm. The music spoke to them because this is where we got off. You bring up the Beatles, which is perfect because the, the bands started going to singer songwriters who had the message and performing at the same time. Absolutely. And it, and like in the lyrical content, it was the first time in human history that that true poetry was really uh, brought into popular music. You know, but for for 
you know that there there was you know the uh the classics you know the the brahms and the chopins and all that but but the, the you know while it was complex and incredible it, the, there was there was no lyrical content um and now any person can turn on their radio and listen to some of the greatest poets alive singing their songs with a guitar you know uh, you listen and and the thing is those guys and girls knew what they were doing you know that bob dylan yes. w- w- hey, joan Baez said that bob, bob dylan uh stated while he was like sitting at his desk that someday they're going to teach this in english classes wow that's amazing wow well, some of some, I mean, day one was, was not the, the headliners, but you know, some of the uh, song titles and when it's over, this was from Bert Sommer from seven fifteen PM. They have, this is so cool. Some of the stuff that you can find, um, speak like a child, snow white lady. I'm not sure if that, that <laughs> is exactly what, but, um, blues, eye, blue eyes on my call on my ceiling, simple song of freedom. Um, most of the songs had a theme really of peace and love. Um, and that was, you know, the, the theme of the whole concert. Um, and some artists were able to, um, go longer than others. Some artists were able to sing their songs, uh, for only 45 minutes. Santana was only on stage according to this. Again, this is Wikipedia guys, but for 45 minutes because, uh, some, you know, something happened and he was only able to perform a couple of sets, you know? Um, and he had the, an interesting little trivia fact about, um, Santana. Guess how old his drummer was at the time? 20 years old. He was the youngest artist of, of anyone, according to this. So I think that's interesting. But, well, you know, like Ar- Arlo Guthrie, like, got there, and yeah. they didn't tell him when he was going to go on. He started hitting the champagne because that was all they could even find to drink. He was drunk <laughs> off yeah. his tail when he took the stage. He said, so it was kind of uh, bittersweet for him. And, you know, the last song that he sang was Amazing Grace. <laughs> which is what, Praise the Lord. <laughs> <it's> like, <laughs> this is awesome, guys. Thank you all for joining us. We have a couple of segments left right here on the Housing Hour. Stick around. To some place where I've never been before. I'm going, I'm going where the water tastes like wine. The Housing Hour with Kevin Ray continues, helping you understand what's really going on out there and what to do about it. Again, Kevin Ray. Welcome back into the Housing Hour. This is Kevin Ray. I am here with Crosby, Still, and Nat. I'm just kidding. Um, thank you guys for joining us. We are talking about the anniversary of Woodstock and what it meant to um, our country and the counterculture, uh, what came of the event, and also what led to the event. And uh, been some very interesting conversation. Uh, and there's so much, there's so many little um, rabbit holes you can go down. But one of the ones that I was uh, noticing was the film, the documentary that came out, Woodstock. And uh, the film was directed by uh, Michael Wadley, I think is how he pronounced it. But I just found it interesting that it was um, edited by um, Thelma Schoolmaker and Martin Scorsese. Yes, that's right. Interesting. Very interesting. I don't think he had Final Cut Pro or iMovie, so I'm not sure what he used, but um, that's just... Razor blades. Yeah, yeah, that's right. what you oh, used 100%. back in the day. Yeah, yeah for real. Um, I just think that's interesting. Obviously, he became and is to this day you know, one of the best film directors of all time. Um, but anyway, the, the other thing, too, that I, I wanted to get your all's take on is 
uh, all of these artists, and Terry was talking about this, like Janis Joplin, well, you, you had mentioned, you know, she was she was kind of coming into her own, um, and some of the other folks, like uh, Grateful Dead was very popular with the counterculture. Um, this might have brought them, I don't know, maybe a little bit in more into the mainstream. I don't know. Uh, it grew their yeah. audience. I yeah. mean, it grew their audience exponentially. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, the, the Dead were, you know, very popular, obviously, in Northern California, you know, but they they didn't get radio play. I mean, they they were not you know part of. I mean, they were not part of the popular music vernacular mm-hmm. even at the time. Uh, you know, people, your average Joe didn't really know who the Grateful Dead was. They knew who they were afterwards, for sure, for sure. And in Janis Joplin, would you say about the same thing? I mean, from marginal to well, I mean, yeah, from from an up and coming. Uh, singer to a superstar uh you know in you know in one weekend it was uh, pretty amazing how how that happened and and uh we, you know we were discussing crosby stills and nash i mean you know th- that was the first time they ever played together mm. you know and they they brought that laurel canyon vibe from uh california out to uh new york and and the next thing you know i mean with all the coverage and you know and sort of the story that was woodstock that you know you you get the laurel canyon sound all all of a sudden becoming a you know a thing that's going to influence the 70s greatly and Mm. and i saw an interview with them uh back just after that probably 1971 um i think dick cavett yeah, was interviewing and and they said that uh, how did how did that happen you know how did the, your sound that happened at woodstock you know take effect he, and still said i have no idea we were on at four o'clock in the morning yeah <laughs> we didn't have any idea anyone was listening <laughs> right you oh, know but those funny. guys were so competitive i mean you know mm. uh you know they're they're living in uh laurel canyon and and they're hearing what brian wilson is doing and they're you know they're listening to pet sounds and they're like we've got to do better than this and david crosby is one of the most competitive human beings i've ever seen i mean he makes tom brady look like he doesn't want to win wow i mean you know and and all of that was sort of brought into one place and covered for the first time by major news networks. I mean, you're talking about Walter Cronkite right. having a conversation. There's not one person in America that didn't listen to Walter Cronkite at the right. time. Wow. I mean, Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young went on at 3 a.m. That is really a remarkable yeah. thing. And I don't know. And actually, this is a question because I know that you also have participated in Bonnaroo. And I guess you guys go every year, don't you? No, oh, I've been a lot. Yeah. Uh, not every year, but we go a lot. And it you know, Bonner had Woodstock not happened, maybe it had Bonnaroo, but you know, there's been so many festivals over the years that have don't want to say replicate or try to copy, but that's sort of what they're trying to do in the sense that they're bringing incredible talent together in a, in a, in an open space, right? Yeah, um, and I don't think I, I think that uh, the the festival uh, movement over the last fifty years is a direct result from the success mm-hmm. and the memories that people have of Woodstock. Mm-hmm. Because you have to think, um, you know, in the sixties, there the the music scene was still a club scene. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was very rare 
to have anybody you know performing in coliseums and things of that sort. That was something that happened later. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, if you if you wanted to go see Waylon Jennings, you could go see Waylon Jennings at a club in Texas, right, you know, right. or in Nashville or something like that. But uh, but they were, they weren't playing the municipal auditorium, right. and and it was before the big. Uh, conglomerates, the big business mm-hmm. bought the bands. Right. It was really before the big uh, contracts. Yeah. I mean, these guys were independents just going in, trying to find gigs wherever they could gig. And then later, Led Zeppelin groups got, you know, bought out by the, the big corporations. Don't you think? Well, uh, Led Zeppelin's actually not a good example because they, they, they negotiated the greatest contract in the history of music. I mean, and, and okay. they are, they are rich to this day because of it. Now, the, but it was a big company. Why, what, didn't they negotiate yeah, yeah. with a big firm? Yeah, it was a uh, big record label. Right. Yeah. Um, but, th- I mean, there were still, all of those acts were signed at the time. They all had recording contracts. They all were doing, you know, kind of, you know, trying to do what, what people could do. Because, honestly, at that time, it, there were not a lot of places in America where you could just go and record. You know, they, they, like every Tom, Dick, and Harry didn't have a home recording studio. You know, right. there there weren't you know the the possibilities that uh, f- for just an average guy that wanted to be in music that they could do anything without the help of yeah. a producer, a manager, a record label, those kind of things. Now that, you have kids like Sean Mendez who just record onto YouTube and look what the look what he's doing now. Uh, well, and totally it, different. It, it, the this the quality of recording today. You can get better than the Beatles had for 19.99 on a download. You know, I mean right. the the microphones that yeah. that you can buy now for a hundred bucks and plug into your computer are vastly superior to what they were using then. Now, a lot of people want to replicate that sound right. and have a, like, Vintage. you know, different, different yeah. difference of opinion as far as like, you know, did this tape sound better? Was there right. more warmth? But I mean, if you, you want to replicate something, you can replicate how somebody sounds yeah. right now for not very much money. Yeah, I mean, there's there's on on any given you know type of editing tool, there's certain filters that it's like '70s filter or mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. So we're, we're we have the the be- best technology, but we're always trying to replicate or duplicate the sound. Yeah. What's the, the nostalgia, nostalgia? You know, absolutely. I mean, like you know, d- d- does an album really sound better than you know a digital recording? Come on, man, <laughs> it sounds different. <laughs> But, you know, I mean, uh, you know, like it's you're not hearing everything. The phones are lighting up. over. Yeah, they they call, you know, you know, you could come to my house and we'll we'll have a vinyl party. But uh, but, you know, let's let's get real. I mean, if you really want to hear, you know, somebody's voice and their musicianship and whatnot, I mean, the, you know, digital is the way to go. Agreed completely. I think, too, um, when I think about Led Zeppelin, because that sort of struck a chord with me, they uh, his uh, promoter, I guess, is U.S. promoter, and this is from Wikipedia, so this is what you know what it says. But he, the promoter at the time, Frank um, Barcelona, uh, said that they would just be another band on the bill, and they didn't want to get mixed up with that. Um, I think that's an interesting comment. Whether that was the real uh, reason they didn't perform, I don't know, but they did perform 
in another show they performed in in Las Vegas like a couple of weeks later, as well as uh, an additional show in New Jersey, 140 miles away. So Led Zeppelin was, I mean, they were they were huge. I mean, they were big. They were, they were big. already big. Yeah. So yeah. I'm not sure that that Frank was was accurate in his assessment there, but um, <laughs> I just think that's interesting because you know Woodstock. When you ask pretty much anybody, you would ask them, "Hey, who who performed at Woodstock?" They would probably name some people that were not there. At, oh, sure. Yeah, know. it happens all the time. Yeah. But, you know, you know, the Stones weren't there. The Beatles weren't there. Led Zeppelin wasn't there. I mean, like, you know, the Doors weren't there. Eminem wasn't I, there. You know, <laughs> but, you know, so, so you know, it, it, is, it is definitely not accurate to say that it was the biggest acts. Right. you know available there it was different it was it was not the biggest acts it was i mean you talk about bonnaroo it was more like bonnaroo was when they started mm-hmm. you know uh, you know how many people that listen to this radio show are big fish fans mm-hmm. you know probably not a whole lot of people but yeah. the people who dig them you know fish they and widespread panic and and that kind of stuff yeah. um you know that that was that was more of the vibe and i and i think uh i think ashley caps and bonnaroo did a wonderful job of building that and you know and it's grown and it was cool to see paul mccartney there it's really cool to see bruce springsteen there i saw mm-hmm. tom petty there twice um but did you ever I, see eminem there no, no no i did not he's been there not. yeah 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 and so, that's so it's not Kanye. Your, that's not your cup of tea <laughs> well uh nas was uh one of the best uh shows i've ever seen not to mix up with little nas x no We're there's talking about the, the original the real nas exactly and uh <laughs> and and honestly is uh you know it, for for his his brand of music is yeah. he's sort of the Bob Dylan of Absolutely. that world, yeah. uh, a genius. His lyrics, if you just break them down, he's great. I love lyrics, and I think that's so so true. Uh, we have one segment left uh, to talk about all of these interesting topics, and uh, we're going to continue that conversation right after these messages. Hour with Kevin Ray continues, helping you understand what's really going on out there and what to do about it. Again, Kevin Ray. Welcome back into the Housing Hour. Again, this is Kevin Ray, and we're here with Terry Adams from Terry Adams Law Firm, also Admiral Title, as well as Mark Griffith, our executive producer and co-host. You guys can also plug in with us if you'd like on Facebook, facebook.com slash the housing hour. Also follow us on Twitter at the housing hour. Um, and we're on the Instagram as well. Now we really have a, a strong presence there. And Mark is still pinning on Pinterest. Absolutely, every day. So you can check out his pins. Um, I was just thinking, Terry, when we were talking, because I noticed on our, our show notes that we were going to have a light history of the counterculture movement. And I don't want to get off topic here too much, but no, I know that you ran for um, Senate a few years back, had a fantastic showing, did a great job. Um, do you think that there's a counterculture movement happening right now? I, you know, I, I'll say no. Uh, not in the same way that... It happened in the 60s. There is there was a clear delineation and there was a and there was a clear uh, movement that was happening at culturally in toto. Mm. 
that's not happening now you know the the women's march is important you know the those those kind of things that that people do that that sort of define an era and you you say you see you know the folks showing up and you know supporting like whatever cause it is um that is not totally supported by the uh, the culture at large um but I don't see those people listening to the same music. I don't see those people uh, totally like being organized. I think right. that um, you know, I think that society's changed so much, and I mm-hmm. think that you know, people spend a lot of time uh, on Facebook and social media thinking that you know that is in some way going to change the culture, or uh, or they're doing something by posting as far as opposed to doing something yeah um that's what it feels like to me um that sounds really really a lot like an old guy talking (laughs) um you know so i but but i don't feel it like and and i would say if you ask i I sat next to david crosby at uh the bruce springsteen show did you really yeah it was pretty cool cool. wow uh yeah i sit down how did he look uh terrible (laughs) but I'm but my, I'm sitting I'm sitting here and then my wife is to my right and David Crosby's to the left and wow. you know and she's 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 like who is that who is he I'm like it's David Crosby and she's like are you sure yes you know so then I, then I'm having to type into my phone like to show her a picture of him to prove that it's him she goes oh my god it is him who is that you know? <laughs> but uh, but I think if you would ask David Crosby you know is this a counterculture mo- movement uh, he would say no it's not a counterculture it's a uh, you know you you have two sides to a lot of issues now yeah. um, but that didn't make it a counterculture so they're like mm-hmm. sub counterculture movements pockets of them here well, and there but I, not I think like- when you say culture you're, you're talking about defining way more than the political state of okay. affairs no I, I agree with you you know yeah. so it, so I, I don't think it, you know there there aren't movies that are defining this particular generation or this particular time underneath uh, you so know, Marvel comics movies aren't doing no, it. No, no. I mean, it, it's just it, you know, like when you think about Easy Rider and how impactful <laughs> yeah, right. that was. Oh yes. Uh, you know, and and how it defined that generation. It like there's nothing like that. Mm-hmm. They're just and you know, and I go to you know, I, I see fifty or sixty films a year. You know, and I look for something that is going to say this is going. This is different. Um, and it's not there. Well, it's, I, I think it's that, not once point of time in Hollywood either. Right. Oh yeah. It's not. I, I think that there's, there's, you know, the counterculture in terms of, you know, people want to make out that like the millennials are a counterculture, but they are the culture in a lot of respects. I mean, it has to be a, a, a an opposing, an opposing to the mainstream, like what, yes. what the mainstream agreed upon way of doing things and beliefs and norms. Um, mm. I, I don't see millennials as being a counter culture i mean i don't see that i see no, their, their generation their i mean generation, that's right. that's not a counterculture right. and, and the you know and the idea of i mean there there's a clear culture of more acceptance of things that weren't acceptable in the past okay. yeah uh, you know i mean to to the extent that there's there's something in the culture that's like that that is pushing things forward mm-hmm. uh, i mean that that clearly exists but it's you know it's not one group of people that's so, true so let's ask terry this mm-hmm. because you know we're on the last segment why did it phase out what killed it 
Why did it not go forward? I, I th- what do you think? I think fundamentally, people grew up. and you know it's really easy to be 20 something and to spend three days in a field without food water you know naked all all those kind of things but you know as the 70s happened you know these people graduated college they got jobs uh you know things looked a lot different and you know and you i I think that a a lot of historians you know particular music and rock historians you know want to uh you know say well the the death of king and rfk was uh like the beginning of of it all uh the concert in california when the uh, rolling stones hired the hell's angels and they beat beat the crap out of a bunch of people Uh, but i don't think it's that i i think that it was the aging out of that generation into a you know a more adult i guess i mean if you look at the 70s how adult they were uh, i don't know but uh you know went from pot to cocaine and from from uh, the beatles to disco you know if you look at uh <clears throat> the uh, crosby still nash and young um i one of those four they went on a tour together and they were in a concert in 2008 at the beginning of the desert storm mm-hmm. neil young was still singing protest war songs which he does and i love him right sure you love neil young yeah. um but that same age group that was out in the audience guess what they were doing they were booing them yeah you can go to the concert and you can see them they were yelling things at him and they were protesting him protesting the war movement right but that's neil young but it was the same crew that he sang to at woodstock yeah where a lot of them were booing it's just Change. Oh, well, well, yeah, I mean, and the the whole neoconservative movement is, you know, a the, those people were part of a counterculture and their viewpoint changed drastically uh, over time. You know, they, the, the neocons were not the the Nixon supporters. Some of the leaders of the neocon movement were. But the but the people who like funded it. They, those were all people who like you know they they were hippies protesting didn't go to vietnam all that kind of thing um and and some of of what happened with with the uh, political discourse was you know hey what were we doing you know i don't want my kids to do this i don't want to grow up in a, them to grow up in a world uh that is that debaucherous mm-hmm. and it's you know I, i've always thought that it was very hypocritical because you know they uh they smoke pot in the 60s they snorted coke in the uh, 80s they you know spent like it was going out of style and then they told everybody else uh hey do that this is this is not for you doesn't that sound like their parents yeah do as i say not as i do well the you know the counterculture definitely from a an acceptance you nailed it to with the fact that in the united states of america you don't no longer have a law where men and women or women and women can't get married. Mm -hmm. That was a pretty huge deal, which is a big counterculture movement that occurred. But um, also I think with you talking about the big companies that are approving lyrics and pushing a message, I think there's more corporate 
sort of um, legislated types of lyrics that come out that maybe, you know, you have certainly plenty of people that sing what they want. Don't get me wrong. But like the Taylor Swift, uh, you know, the people who make it really big and get the most amount of exposure, um, those 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 are corporately branded messages in a lot of ways. Um, You're not going to get Eminem any longer being a huge commercial um, success because nobody wants to push that even though he sold a lot of records and he still does, but you're not going to see him on, you know, Saturday night live hosting Saturday night live. You're just not going to see it. And that's why George Michaels brought the lawsuit against whatever company that he had signed with. They were trying to control his content Mm. and he had one of the biggest lawsuits Mm -hmm. in rock history. Yeah, and against the establishment. Well, and the, the fact of the matter is, you know, talk about the change. The, I mean, there's there are computer programs now that tell you whether or not a song is going to be a hit. Oh, wow. um, and you know, <laughs> wow. and, and they're and they're used. I mean, I don't yeah. know who owns this, this station, but I mean, you know, Clear Channel does use those uh, Cumulus. programs. Cumulus, to, yeah. yeah, to make sure that um, people don't turn the channel. I mm. mean, and don't ever forget that the radio is here not for your listening pleasure. But to sell Ford pickup trucks and whatever else, whoever is right. advertising. That's right. And Mortgage Investors Group loves making American dreams come true. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> Speaking of that, well, uh, we're running out of time. Amazingly, this has been a great show. Thank you so much for coming. And it was interesting and it's very, very inspiring to hear all these cool things. Um, you guys need to definitely share this show with friends and family. We would love to get you to get this show going around. Thank you to Mark and also thank you to Terry. Uh, thank you guys for just being a part of this. And uh, we'll see you next time right here on the Housing Hour. That's the Housing Hour with Kevin Ray for today. Join Kevin and his guests each week at this time to keep up with the why and why not you need to know, so come here to find out. Also, check us out at thehousinghour.com. This show is presented by Mortgage Investors Group.